my topic is judicial globalization, and it touches on some of the things that Chris uh, was talking about, universal jurisdiction and the alien tort statute. And I'm going to leave plenty of time for questions, and I'm, I'm happy to entertain questions uh, on any of those subjects. But I'd actually like to talk about a phenomenon that is, uh, for a long time, was, was not noticed at all, is now getting more attention, but is still uh, not nearly recognized enough, uh, given the magnitude uh, of what's actually happening. When we talk about globalization, we talk about corporations, or maybe non-governmental organizations. We don't generally talk about courts. But in fact, courts are globalizing just as much as other sectors. Um, this takes this phenomenon, which I call judicial globalization, uh, takes a number of forms. I'd like to start uh, by reading you a quote. Uh, the greater use of foreign materials affords another source, another tool for the construction of better judgments. The greater use of foreign materials by court and counsel in all countries can, I think, only enhance their effectiveness and their sophistication. That is from a Canadian Supreme Court justice, but as you will hear, many of our own Supreme Court justices uh, are saying the same thing. Um, Judges are talking to one another all over the world. Uh, they do so uh, by exchanging opinions, so you know, virtual talking where they're reading what one another writes. Uh, they do so face-to-face -face in seminars, places like the Yale Law School's Global Constitutionalism Seminar. Uh, NYU has run global constitutional seminars uh, for judges not only in New York but in their Villa La Pietra. Uh, in Florence, very well attended those uh, seminars. Uh, the Federal Judicial Conference established a committee on international judicial relations back in 1993 uh, to conduct a wide variety of exchanges and training programs thanks, uh, for foreign courts. Now, for most of us, the idea that the federal judiciary would have a foreign relations committee is itself fairly surprising. Foreign relations committees are the province of Congress. Uh, not of, of the judiciary, but there you are. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has had regular summits in the past uh, decade with its counterparts in Europe, the law lords in Britain, the French Constitutional Court, the German Constitutional Court, the European Court of Human Rights at the level of the European Union, the European, uh, I'm sorry, the European Court of Justice at the level of the European Union, and at the level of all of Europe, the European Court of Human Rights. Also in India, with the Indian uh, Supreme Court, and most recently uh, in Mexico. Uh, beyond the U.S., uh, when the United Nations uh, holds these big global conferences that you read about uh, on the environment or on racism, uh, they are beginning to organize global judges symposia alongside, where judges from all the invited countries come uh, and actually uh, talk to one another about their own environmental jurisprudence. Uh, most recently, uh, the, the, there was one on, in connection with the environment that brought together over 100 of the world's most senior judges from over 80 countries. So you're seeing this in many, many uh, ways in the constitutional area uh, and in, the air, in, in some specific areas like human rights, the death penalty, uh, the environment. And indeed, as I will argue, uh, you're beginning to even get something that without too much hyperbole could be called 
global constitutional jurisprudence. Now, let me make very clear at the outset, this isn't some kind of binding set of rules or case law. This is entirely persuasive authority. It has to be. I mean, we're talking about different judicial systems. However, uh, a, uh, in, in our own Supreme Court, in a recent criminal case, Justice Breyer cited cases from Zimbabwe, India, South Africa, and Canada. And each of those cases cite one another. So if we think of, from the common law point of view, if you think of the states of the United States, in any given area, there may be a handful of precedents that are recognized as important precedents, and a state court decision or a federal court decision is likely to cite them. Well, you're starting to see the same thing globally uh, in, on particular uh, issues. Indeed, the, a Canadian constitutional court justice says that unlike past legal borrowing, we all know about legal borrowing, our own judicial system was built on legal borrowing chiefly uh, from the English, uh, now you're seeing an active and ongoing dialogue. So it's not just a passive, you know, a citation of another court's decision, it's an active dialogue where these judges are working from the same set of cases and are reading one another and often actually debating. In fact, there is a website. It is a private website. I do not know where it is, but I am reliably assured of its existence on which many judges, including very distinguished US federal judges, exchange views uh, on opinions. They're very lively uh, discussions. And indeed, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor has led this movement on our own Supreme Court, stumping the country and telling both judges and lawyers that they need to read more international law and foreign law uh, to essentially, as she puts it in her inimitable way, get with it. Uh, that the world has globalized and judges cannot afford to be so parochial. In addition, Chief Justice Rehnquist now urges all U.S. judges to participate in international judicial exchanges on the ground that it is important for judges and legal communities of different nations to exchange views, share information, and learn to better understand one another and our legal systems. So even Justice Rehnquist is not generally a fan of citing foreign law, but he is urging US judges to participate uh, in international judicial exchanges. There are also a set of vertical relationships between judges, which I'm not going to talk about today, but I just want to note that what I'm describing are judges in different countries who are networking with one another, just as environmental regulators or intelligence uh, agents or prosecutors, all many members of our government are networking with one another. Judges do that. They also have relationships with their supranational counterparts. So national judges in Europe, have direct relations with the European Court of Justice. Judges in Africa cite cases from the European Court of Human Rights. This is not a counterpart, it's a supranational body, but judges in many different countries actually cite those opinions, and again, uh, it's a two-way exchange often. And in the trade area, uh, increasingly, uh, we have these supranational trade dispute panels, NAFTA panels of arbitrators, and what they are deciding is now getting challenged in domestic court. So again, you have a, a kind of relationship uh, there. As I said, I'm going to, to put those aside, but I'm, I'm happy to answer questions on it. Another important uh, set of examples comes from private litigation, uh, from the realm of all transnational commercial uh, litigation. 
In a breach of contract case in 1983, Lord Denning observed that he was faced with a situation in which, quote, one court or another must give way. I wish that we could sit together to discuss it. Because, of course, there's often a suit filed and a plaintiff will sue a European de defendant in U.S. court and the European defendant will become plaintiff in Europe and, and reverse the suit, right? We have parallel litigation. So Lord Denning says, I wish we could sit down to discuss it. Well, 21 years later, courts are sitting down uh, to discuss it, at least virtually. Uh, they are entering into what one distinguished bankruptcy scholar calls international judicial negotiation. Now again, think about foreign relations as we have always known it. We did not have judicial foreign relations committees and we certainly didn't have international judicial negotiation or at least not conducted by judges. You might have had diplomats negotiating about international courts. Uh, in fact, there are bankruptcy cases where you can find a, an order and protocol negotiated by a British, an American, and an Israeli court figuring out how the assets of a global uh, corporation that has gone into bankruptcy are going to be adjudicated. Makes a lot of sense, as Lord Denning says. Why don't you come together and figure it out instead of waging a battle uh, via opinion? Uh, but it is uh, a new uh, phenomenon. Um, I would argue that if you take all these different examples, and the last category, so, so you have face-to-face -face meetings, constitutional cross-fertilization, and a huge amount of transnational litigation in which courts are increasingly interacting more and more directly, what you are seeing is the construction of a global legal system. Now, normally, when we think about a global legal system, or if you're at least in my career, if you're an international lawyer, what that was supposed to mean was some kind of world supreme court, uh, like the International Court of Justice. You're gonna have one court, and it was gonna hand down judgments, and courts in all nations were going to obey. No, it doesn't look anything like that. For one thing, there is no central coercive authority, nor, in my own view, should there be, nor in my own view will there ever be, at least not within the foreseeable future. Nevertheless, this set of interactions, this cross-fertilization, is creating the equivalent, if we say we have a global economy, well, of course, we have lots of different actors and there's no one set of rules, there are many different rules, but everybody's interrelated, but we're starting to see the beginnings of a global legal system in the same way through the interactions, uh, not of national courts, rather than a hierarchy with a supranational court handing down judgments uh, to be taken from national courts. So judicial globalization in these, uh, both face-to-face -face and in constitutional law and transnational litigation, constructing uh, the equivalent of a global uh, legal system. Let me uh, give you some examples uh, in each of these categories, and then I will sum up and, and turn it over uh, to you for, for questions. Um, let me say, though, that I think what is most remarkable about this phenomenon is that there is no uh, actual authority. Uh, there's no reason for a U.S. court to look to what an Indian court has to say or a South African court, and no reason for those courts uh, to look to one another, except that 
they recognize one another as participants in a common enterprise of judging. That, and these are not all countries. These are generally countries that have a well-regarded respect for the rule of law. Uh, some are de developing nations, certainly South Africa or India, uh, but they have strong jurisprudential traditions. They have well-educated judges, and they share a notion of what judging means, what judicial independence is, uh, what the rule of law means, at least enough of a common notion to be able to engage in this kind of discussion. Uh, that's a, a recognition of a, of a profession that transcends national borders, just as we might recognize doctors or physicists uh, or uh, uh, government regulators, such as financial regulators of different uh, kinds. And in that sense, you might think about this global uh, judicial system as a community of courts rather than as a hierarchical uh, system. All right, so let, <clears throat> let me give you a few examples. Um, consider the following statement. The Supreme Court has to an increasing degree taken part in international collaboration among the highest courts. It is a natural obligation that, insofar as we have the capacity, we should take part in European and international debate and mutual interaction. We should especially contribute to the ongoing debate on the court's position on international human rights. This justice continues, it is the duty of national courts and especially of the highest court in a small country to introduce new legal ideas from the outside world into national judicial decisions. Well, now you will have figured out this is not Chief Justice Rehnquist. We're talking about a small European country. We're talking about the Chief Justice of Norway. Nevertheless, a, a remarkable statement, it is the duty uh, of the nation's highest court to participate in a global dialogue about universal human rights. All courts ha are in the business, all good courts are in the business of protecting individual rights, and that can come from a constitution or a human rights treaty, but you should participate. Um, Chief Justice Rehnquist does not go this far, but you heard him encouraging judges to participate in international uh, judicial uh, exchanges, and just Justice uh, Claire Leroy Dubé of the Canadian Supreme Court says more and more courts, particularly within the common law world, are looking to the judgments of other jurisdictions, particularly when making decisions on human rights issues. She then goes on to say the United States has been very slow in participating in this dialogue and that as a result it is losing influence that increasingly the judgments that are cited by other courts are South African and Canadian uh, judgments. Now there are a number of reasons for this. These are two new courts. As new courts, they tend to look to the precedents of their predecessors. So in some sense, although the Canadian justices don't like this, I've pointed out that it's like having the world, world's most global clerk you can read a decision uh, by a Canadian, uh, the Canadian Constitutional Court and find out what a whole range of courts in different countries have had to say. The South African Constitutional Court is mandated by the Constitution to look to foreign courts uh, and to international law. So in some sense, these uh, judges' decisions are being cited because they themselves represent a composite uh, of different views. They don't necessarily follow any of these decisions, but they collect them and discuss them. But the other reason is that these courts are engaging one another 
and increasingly then citing one another, and the United States has been outside the debate and is increasingly regarded as a kind of sui generis, often extremist constitutional jurisprudence. This is unfortunate uh, given that most of these courts, or many of these courts, not most, but many of them were in fact established by the United States and many of them looked to the United States Supreme Court for a very long time. Many of these judges were educated in US law schools. So one of the corollaries here is that if you want to be listened to, you've got to be part of the debate. In many ways, uh, this cross-fertilization is certainly not entirely new. As I said, you can go back to 19th century precedents, 18th century precedents, and find courts looking uh, abroad. But it's certainly much more intense. It's, of course, aided by things like Lexis, where now you can get foreign judicial decisions very, very easily. And interestingly, uh, judge, judges and courts in other countries are aware of the power of the web. And the Taiwanese Constitutional Court had its decisions translated into English so that they could be made available so that it could participate uh, in this global constitutional uh, dialogue. Um, you're also seeing things like the European Commission for Democracy Through Law, which is called the Venice Commission. It has a website, which is called Codices, uh, that collects and digests the decisions of constitutional courts and courts of equivalent jurisdictions from around the world. So you click on Codices and you can, if you, you know, put in free speech, you can get the results from over 50 jurisdictions, literally at the click of a mouse. Uh, and the point of codices is to allow judges and constitutional law specialists uh, in both government and the academic world to be informed about each other's uh, judgments. In Asia, there's something called Law Asia that, that plays a similar role. Uh, and every t it seems to me uh, every time I turn around, there's another uh, non-governmental organization fostering uh, this kind of, of exchange. The I should say at this point, uh, and I, I think it'll be one of the issues we might want to talk about uh, further, uh, this is not uncontroversial, as we've uh, seen in our own Supreme Court. Uh, the, no one is saying that you would cite a foreign decision, again, as precedent. That's not thinkable. The question is, do you cite it legitimately as persuasive authority? And the arguments for doing that are because you have more ideas at hand, more uh, thinking, the, you learn something, your deliberation is informed, you write a better decision. And if you listen to Justice Breyer, Justice Ginsburg, or Ju they will say, this is why we, we should do this. And of course, as an academic, that's a self-evident proposition. Uh, no one would say, gee, you know, I don't want to read that because a Frenchman thought it up. Uh, I'm going to think it up myself for the first time. You'd say, of course, you know, if you have access to more information and it's relevant, you would look at it. However, judges are not scholars. They may be scholars, but they're more than scholars. And Justice Charles Freed of the Massachusetts uh, Supreme Judicial Court has written a very interesting article called Judges and Scholars, where he says, no, it's fine for scholars to do this, but it's not okay for judges uh, to do this because they should look only to the confines of their own legal system. So even though a Canadian decision might be much more on point than a decision in Florida, a federal court can look to the Florida decision, again, persuasive authority, but not to the Canadian decision. And that's because we are a democratic country and we're bounded by what our people say and what only American judges uh, think. 
That debate is hot and heavy on the Supreme Court. Uh, the, we essentially, uh, Justice O'Connor, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Stevens, and Justice Breyer are all firmly in the site foreign opinions camp, or at least read them. Uh, and indeed, Justice Breyer says, a decent respect for the opinion of mankind would seem to require no less. Justice Scalia, uh, ever direct, says, it is the Constitution of the United States we are expounding. It is not some universalist document. It is our Constitution, and we look only to what uh, we, American courts and lawyers, have to say about things. This summer, for the first time, the, a foreign court decision was cited in a majority opinion. In Lawrence v. Texas, the uh, case striking down the Texas sodomy laws, Justice Kennedy cited the European Court of Human Rights, uh, saying that if the proposition was uh, that homosexuality was reviled by civilized nations, it seemed relevant to see that the European Court of Human Rights, which has jurisdiction over 25 nations who share our values in our political system, uh, had in fact uh, similarly struck down an anti-sodomy law. So there you have uh, Justice Kennedy looking abroad for something on point in the case. He's not saying the European Court of Human Rights thinks this and we're going to follow, but he's saying, you know, what they have to say is relevant. So watch that space. Uh, it's a very active, ongoing debate, and I put to you, it is a uh, principal fruit of judicial globalization. Let me just give you a couple of examples now from the private uh, side, because I think you will find them equally uh, surprising uh, in the uh, in their candor and their self-awareness about uh, what is actually uh, going on here. So, as I said, you have you know, a global economy where you have goods manufactured in 20 different countries sometimes, different parts, and of course when there's a, a tort suit or a breach of contract, uh, there are many different countries that could have jurisdiction, in case you haven't realized, you probably have realized I taught international litigation for years. Uh, the uh, uh, um, when these cases, when these disputes arise, many different courts uh, have uh, jurisdiction and sometimes fight with each other. Uh, when Justice Breyer was Judge Breyer on the First Circuit, uh, he wrote in one of these cases, a case uh, involving Lloyds of London, that the task is to help the world's legal systems work together in harmony rather than at cross purposes. Judge Calabresi, uh, former dean of the Yale Law School, now on the Second Circuit, uh, interpreted a U.S. discovery statute uh, to, uh, as, as com contemplating international cooperation and then wrote, such cooperation presupposes an ongoing dialogue between the adjudicative bodies of the world community. That's an extraordinary statement. Not between national courts, between the adjudicative bodies of the world community. That's saying, no, we're all judges and we do the same thing and we ought to be uh, in dialogue with one another. You can imagine CEOs talking like that, but judges, it's unusual. Um, I should not give you the impression, however, that these relations are always harmonious. Uh, and indeed, we, if there'd be something seriously wrong uh, if, the, if there were. Um, in the same uh, case in which Judge Calabresi has this glowing vision of the adjudicative bodies of the world community. Um, the dissenting member uh, of his panel accused him of blatant interference with the French judicial system. 
I should note, the French agreed that it was blatant interference uh, with their uh, judicial system. In another case, uh, Judge Owen of the Southern District of New York squared off with a Hong Kong judge over an insider trading case. Uh, in refusing to defer jurisdiction to the Hong Kong court, this is insider trading, Judge Owen said, um, I'm not going to do this. I'm an American judge, and this is an American agency, and I will keep jurisdiction, and I will direct payment into the court. Um, in his paraphrase, the defendant in this case was arguing that they should be litigating in Hong Kong on the ground that out there in Hong Kong, they practically give you a medal for doing this sort of thing. <laughs> well, this is a very, uh, very blunt talk between a U.S. judge and a Hong Kong judge over, the, over commercial practices. Uh, in Hong Kong, the judge responded, this court will always take whatever effective steps are legally available to it under Hong Kong law uh, to deal with illegal or morally reprehensible commercial uh, conduct. Where a conflict of law situation does arise, the dispute should be approached in a spirit of judicial comity rather than judicial competitiveness, uh, put it, putting down uh, the language uh, of his uh, American counterpart. And in a well-known decision, uh, by Judge Posner, uh, Judge Posner decided that a French commercial court, it has the name uh, commercial court, uh, was not in fact a real court. Judge Posner wrote, although called a court, it's actually a panel, panel of arbitrators composed of businessmen who devote part time to arbitrating. Judge Posner Somewhat unusually, he was a former colleague, uh, but somewhat unusually, he was aware of the seeming offensiveness of his conclusions. And he admitted, at first glance, the action of an American judge in enjoining what is practically an arm of the French state from litigating a suit on a French insurance policy in a French court may seem an extraordinary breach of international comedy. Nevertheless, Judge Posner said that the US, he was just assessing the relative competence of this French panel of businessmen and a US commercial court to hear this dispute. And he said, and this is the key part, that if the situation were reversed and there were a regular French court versus an American panel of businessmen, he would think it was better handled in France. So he's saying this is not about nationalism. This is about, I'm a judge, and I can figure out whether or not, where you're going to get the better quality of justice. And I think a professional judge, rather than a panel of businessmen, is a better place to hear this suit. Now, I cite these examples because you might look at them and say, wait a minute, this, this is no construction of a judicial, global judicial system. This is a bunch of judges you know, fighting with one another across borders. But the interesting thing is they fight with one another increasingly openly because they are incre increasingly linked as one system. Traditionally, this would have been, this is the sovereign state of France, and we must defer to the sovereign state of France. And indeed, the State Department might well have gotten involved. You started from the premise of separate sovereigns. Today, increasingly, they start from the premise of a global legal system. And the only question is, who's better placed within that system to hear a particular case? So they've actually integrated as courts, but then they fight it out in terms of which court uh, is better able to hear a particular case. All right, so those are uh, examples. I have many others, but mindful of the time and, and having started uh, late, I just want to um, conclude uh, by, again, um, noting the, the uh, many, many uh, fora uh, in which these exchanges, these judicial exchanges, are also 
taking place face to face. To note that judges are increasingly forming their own associations. There's the International Association of Refugee Judges, uh, their regional ones, the Association of Judges of the Baltic States, uh, the Association of Judges uh, of Latin American States. Uh, and I think we will uh, come to see uh, judges interacting with one another and supporting one another uh, in different countries, again, in ways that we are very accustomed to economically, uh, in the civil society, uh, and should become accustomed to in the judicial system. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dean Slavin. Thank you so much for walking around in the studio to be with us today. We are going to tape your comments, so I ask one thing. If you raise your hand and you'd like to say something, please wait for the mic. Please introduce yourself. Larry Moore, class of 66. Uh, Dean, I, I, I'm thinking about the Bill Paul case with Union Carbide, and in each of these conflicts, there seems to be a, a, a conflict of law, a choice of law issue, and to tell you the truth, I think that case was adjudicated in India and not the United States, and I guess my question was, if you, if you know, was there a, an attempt to remove that case uh, to the United States, and, and who does that? Do the courts do that? Does the State Department do that? How does that work? Now, that's a great question. Uh, it was an amazing uh, effort, uh, because what, what happened initially is that the case... Uh, the court, you Sorry. I can't, you can't hear me after all those years of walking? microphone and then years of, of uh, addressing 150 person classes but I will speak on it. Oh is there? Okay I'll put it on. Now I'm much more comfortable walking around. Um, can you hear me now? Okay. Um, you have no faith in my technical Now can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, okay, great. All right, so the case was brought, and of course, Bhopal happens in India. The case is not initially filed in India. It's filed against Union Carbide in New York. Now, we know why, right? Lord Denning, my quoted earlier, said, as the moth is drawn to the flame, so is the plaintiff drawn to the U.S. legal system. <laughs> sure enough. So what happened? Union Carbide, who's being sued, of course, in its home jurisdiction, says form non-convenience, inconvenient form. Inconven the form non-convenience doctrine says uh, this is inconvenient for us to litigate there. Well, now, obviously it's not inconvenient in some sense, it's, it's home jurisdiction, but of course the evidence and the witnesses and the relevant uh, law, they're arguing Indian law applies and Indian judges are better able to apply Indian law, so they say uh, it should be transferred. The judge agrees but initially, and it's an extraordinary opinion, says, I will grant a foreign non-convenience transfer, but I will keep jurisdiction and oversee the discovery process. Well, this was a little too much, even for the Second Circuit. The American judge can't say, you, you can try the case, but we'll just watch to see if you're doing it right. Uh, and that got overturned uh, by the Second Circuit. And then it did get tried in India. 
But at some point, the, the Indian government, actually, in, in all of this, the Indian government itself was arguing that it should be tried in the United States because they thought it, that you would get uh, a better judgment in the United States than in India. So it, it, depending on where you sat, uh, it, had, it had nothing to do with, it, with the sort of merits of where it should be tried. Yes? Uh, I'm Joe Knox. I'm a member of the class of 58. If there's a, a judgment, if, if there's a, a trial in a U.S. court, I understand it's the U.S. Constitution that ultimately we go back to. I worry about the European Court of Justice. I worry about the Belgian court saying that they have worldwide jurisdiction for abuses of human rights. And my question is, what is the body of law that these courts use to make their decisions, the European Court of Justice or the uh, Belgian courts when it comes to human rights. And I'm concerned that uh, the, the, the equivalent of the Constitution that we have, I, I don't understand what it is they would use to make similar kinds of judgments. Okay, so, um, I mean, to start with, let's, let's start with the Belgian uh, courts. They, of course, would use Belgian legal system, and, the, and Belgium has a constitution. Uh, it, it provides uh, most of the same safeguards, although, of course, big differences in a civil system and a common law system. But in general, we recognize that it's a different way of assuring due process, but it, it does assure uh, due process. And of course, if you were, if you committed a crime in Belgium, if you were there and you committed a crime, you'd be prosecuted by a Belgian prosecutor under Belgian law, and you would not be able to say, hey, I'm an American, I'm entitled to the provision of the protection of my constitution. So in that sense, if you commit a crime abroad, you are not entitled uh, to, to be tried here. Um, now, if you are obviously uh, taken captive by a government that has none of these uh, safeguards. The government will try to get you back, but but in, certainly in Europe, uh, you have no right to be tried under the Constitution. If you are uh, being tried on a human rights charge, uh, they are likely to apply the International uh, Convention uh, on Civil and Political Rights, uh, and that will give you a certain number of guarantees. Uh, and in addition. The substantive law uh, they might apply it would depend. Most other countries do, in fact, incorporate international law uh, in their law. We do, too, formally. I mean, Article 6 says treaties are the law of the land. But in fact, we have lots of barriers. Uh, we ratify treaties, but we don't generally make them self-executing. We don't apply them directly. So it is likely that were you in a Belgian court on such a charge, that judge would be more likely to apply international treaties, some of which the U.S. has signed on to, uh, probably than, than at home. Um, but you're, you're not, you know, they have no power over you uh, here. It's only if you are actually within their jurisdiction, and that's, that's always been true. Follow-up question? Sure. Um, the International Court of Justice, I think, is the one that the Bush administration said we're not going to sign on and become a party to that. The feeling being, I think, that they could uh, try U.S. officials for various things with which we might not agree. What's your view on that? Okay, you don't want another lecture, so I'm going to try to do it. I could certainly give you one. Uh, so um, I actually think, go, go back to your first question, which is you know, the fear of universal jurisdiction. I mean, the thing we really fear is 
you know, that George Bush is going to get hauled into a Belgian court. Now, the Belgians back down very fast, right? But, but there are universal jurisdiction means any court anywhere in the world could try someone for crimes against humanity or genocide. Um, the International Criminal Court, it's not the International Court of Justice, that's, a, that's only state to state, but the International Criminal Court is our best protection against that. Uh, in other words, if we were party to the International Criminal Court and any of our citizens were accused of a crime against humanity or genocide or uh, serious war crimes, under the treaty, that person would have to be returned to the United States to be tried by a U.S. court. Only if the U.S. court were unable or unwilling, and there's a very high standard there, would that person then be sent to The Hague. But even if that person were sent to The Hague, they'd be tried by a panel of judges, including U.S. judges, if we were a party to the statute. And I would wager that they would get a far higher quality of justice than they're going to get in a national court of a country that has U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, universal jurisdiction allows any country, any court in any country, to try somebody for these crimes. The ICC says, no, 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 you've got to be tried by your national court first. Only if your national court fails do you go to The Hague. And once you go to The Hague, you still have the full panoply of international uh, due process. So in many, many, uh, I could say a lot of other things about the ICC, but on that specific point, we'd be better off. Henry Kissinger would, would breathe easier, although he doesn't recognize that. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, with respect to Belgium versus the ICC, I'm not going to get anywhere near that point. Um, my name is John Gordon. You said at one point that we were, the U.S. was regarded not only as out of the mainstream, but as, I, if I heard you correctly, extremist, uh, which implies extreme on some continuum or more than one. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, well, the, the, the standard example is, is, of course, our First Amendment jurisprudence, where we really are. You know, if you have a spectrum, uh, most other liberal democracies are about here on, on protection of free speech. Most are far more willing to trade off free speech versus things like hate crimes. So hate speech is a good example. In Europe, hate speech is banned. I mean, it, the Germans obviously had a horrific history and they don't allow hate speech. We are way out on the protection of free speech for cultural and historical and legal reasons. Uh, so in that sense, uh, we're seeing uh, when I say it's, it's extreme on the spectrum, and we're really sui generis, and the other nations just don't get it, uh, but it's not regarded as better or worse, just different. In other areas, of course, we are, uh, such as the death penalty, there we really are regarded as an outlier and an outlier uh, in a more pejorative sense, right? I mean, we're much closer to Islamic countries on the death penalty than we are to Japan and Western Europe. Indeed, when I used to teach introduction to American law to 150 foreign lawyers at Harvard Law School, the students who were most comfortable with our system were all Islamic students. They said, yeah, strong judges, independent judges, you can make law, you can do all that in the Islamic system as well. And of course, the death penalty they had no problem uh, with. So, there, but there are other areas where we are seen increasingly as extreme in the sense that we, we really just have this, this particular trajectory uh, that is independent of uh, where many other countries uh, are, de are developing. Hi, I'm Bob Rogers, class of 56, and thereby Charlie Freed's classmate, by the way. Okay. Uh, which leads me 
to ask for your help in, in a little background on his aversion to foreign entanglement. Is it, <laughs> is it uh, primarily on a sovereignty basis, or is he concerned about pollution, or uh, can, you, can you explain a little bit his view, and then if, if briefly, whether you could give your own view of, of his position, please. I will. Uh, it, is, it's, it's a, it is a very interesting uh, issue. Charles Freed, um, former Solicitor General, former uh, Justice on the Supreme Judicial Court, and my colleague at Harvard Law School for a number of years. Uh, we disagree on many matters, but are, are, are good friends. His view is a very interesting one. What he says is, this is equivalent to the introduction of the Brandeis brief. So 1918, uh, before 1918, you couldn't cite social science to a court, right? If you had a case about antitrust today, you're gonna cite economics. You're gonna bring in a law and economics consultants. If you have a case about social welfare, you'll probably bring in poverty statistics and all sorts of things. We didn't used to be able to do that, right? Brandeis writes the Brandeis brief in Miller v. Oregon, showing what the... To ask for your help in, in a little background on his aversion to foreign entanglement, is it, <laughs> is it uh, primarily on a sovereignty basis, or is he concerned about pollution, or uh, can, you, can you explain a little bit his view, and then, if, if briefly, whether you could give your own view of of his position, It is a very interesting uh, issue. Charles Freed, um, former Solicitor General, former uh, Justice on the Supreme Judicial Court, and my colleague at Harvard Law School for a number of years. Uh, we disagree on many matters, but are, 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 are good friends. His view is a very interesting one. What he says is, this is equivalent to the introduction of the Brandeis brief. So 1918, uh, before 1918, you couldn't cite social science to a court, right? If you had a case about antitrust today, you're going to cite economics. You're going to bring in a law and economics consultants. If you have a case about social welfare, you'll probably bring in poverty statistics and all sorts of things. We didn't used to be able to do that, right? Brandeis writes the Brandeis brief in Mueller v. Oregon, showing what the impact is of, of women working more than eight hours a day. The case involves an Oregon statute limiting the number of hours women can work. Brandeis is arguing for the statute. He brings in all this information. Freed says, we now accept that. That widens the ambit of materials that judges draw on, and that does change outcomes. So he's first, his first premise is this is different than scholarship because this actually does change results just by virtue of the fact you have access uh, to more information. Now, the cynics will say, yeah, that means you've got access to more ways of dressing up whatever result you want to reach. I'm not a cynic. I say it, it actually uh, it gives you information that might genuinely change your mind. Then he says, and this is the key part, it is a fact, and it goes back to your question. We are often to the right of our fellow community of liberal democracies. So if you start citing the South African court and the, and the English court and the German court, overall, the tilt is probably to the left. Now, I can find you plenty of examples where that won't be true. But I think it should be recognized that at least now, uh, on many issues, uh, it is likely the people who are going to cite these cases the most fervently are probably the plaintiffs in many uh, civil rights cases. 
over time and in the business area, that's probably not true. So it's probably more like social science, that over time you're going to find social science that goes in both directions. But I would have said in Brandeis's day too, who was Brandeis fighting for, right? Brandeis was fighting uh, for the women uh, who needed uh, protection. So there, Charlie Freed doesn't come right out and say that, but he does say this, this will change outcomes and it's not neutral. My own view is we should be citing it because we should be leading the world uh, and participating in these di in dialogues and resuming our own place as a great jurisprudential tradition. Edward uh, Woolley, class of 1951. Uh, most of what we've been discussing is criminal law. Now, isn't there really a lot of globalization going on through the treaty process? I mean, for example, uh, in the maritime field, there are all kinds of treaties. There's the international commercial code, and uh, there are tax laws, although most of those are bilateral. Uh, still, there's an enormous amount of globalization going on in that field, and I might support your statement about the U.S. being left behind, and my personal experience in many of these fora, uh, the U.S. position is ignored because they know we won't ratify the treaty in question. Right. No. Uh, very good point. The, there, there is. There's a huge amount of commercial globalization, and sometimes it's by formal treaty. Uh, sometimes it's by regulators in a particular area, so it's securities regulators, tax uh, officials, uh, uh, insurance supervisors, uh, who get together and compare their, the codes and develop codes of best practices and conform increasingly uh, to sort of common norms because, of course, their clients want some global uh, stability there. Uh, and in, in the treaty area, you're right, the United States generally is, 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 is uh, refusing. Uh, in the informal code of best practices area, we, we are more leaders. I mean, our, more of the world has adopted something that looks like our own securities law than, than other countries. Antitrust, it's sort of a mix. We were the leaders forever. Now the Europeans, uh, since they basically borrowed our own system and are applying it against us, are, are leading with respect to Eastern Europe. But, but you're absolutely right. There's an enormous amount of formal and informal harmonization uh, of laws and, of course, resulting uh, for, as a result of globalization. Any other questions? <laughs> yes, uh, I, I am Frank Phillips, and I am from your dad's class of 1953. That would be the great class. <laughs> <laughs> the great class. Yes, I have two questions. Uh, one of them is kind of dumb, so I'll ask the other one. Um, in, in a case where uh, there is uh, political antagonism, such as Cuba. How do they get in there to discuss and, uh, and, and sort of invent something that'll make some sense? Okay, so, so the first answer is I don't have any Cuban examples. <laughs> so I don't think the Cuban judges are uh, uh, terribly active in some of these uh, fora. And in some cases, there's no question that in countries where effectively you don't have any kind of separation of powers, where it's, it's one uh, dictatorship, you're not seeing much independent interaction by judges or regulators or, or legislators. Uh, so I I Iranians are not participating very much, Cubans are not participating very much, the Chinese uh, are not participating very much until very, very recently. 
which means that, of course, my, my, the story I'm telling is not global, global. You could call it partial globalization. There are countries that are left out. However, there, some of the most interesting cases of judicial globalization involve judges supporting a judge in another country who is trying to stand up to his particular government. And the best example is Chief Judge Gabai in Zimbabwe, a superb Oxford-trained lawyer and judge who has single-handedly tried to, to face down the Mugabe regime and has been at great personal uh, danger, and his court's been shut down. Judges around the world, including some of our own Supreme Court justices, have tried to support him. And he said, in one of these groups of judges, he said the most important thing was that I knew I was not alone. So one of the implications of a community of judges is that in some cases, you don't condemn the whole country. You identify the people in the country who are trying to, to fight for what's right. A Philip Albert, class of 43. Great. Wasn't early American jurisprudence uh, often influenced by English common law so that globalization was, not, that's my first question, not necessarily uh, new. Yes. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. It's, it's not new, uh, but it's, an, I, what I always say, it's, it's an increase in degree sufficient to make it a different, a different an incre difference in kind, because it's so much denser and it's interactive. That was one way borrowing. You know, the Brits weren't looking at what we had to say. We were looking at what they had to say. Now, now it's both. But no, absolutely, courts have, have long looked uh, to other courts where they didn't have law on point. Now they're looking even when they do have law on point. I think we're out of time. So thank you so much. Thank you.